church family. Wow, it's good to see you. We're into December already. Can you believe it? You can believe it? It's been a long year, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I can too, man. I can too. Well, this morning as we get started, I want you to imagine two individuals, two men. Um, same age, same background, same education, maybe even the same race. And both of these guys are given the same job. And this job is somewhat mundane, pretty painfully boring. Um, it's, it's labor driven. Picture it being something like taking one nut and putting it on one bolt, hour after hour, day after day, week after week. That's what they do, eight hours a day, all day. Imagine that being their job, both of these guys. And one of the workers is told that at the end of the year, he will make $20,000. That's what his salary is going to be, or maybe that's what his, his full income will be, is $20,000. If you take this nut and put it on this bolt, eight hours a day, 50 hours a week, yeah, they'll give him two weeks vacation, and um, do that for the whole year, you'll make $20,000. And the other individual doing the same job with the same experience, education, background, age, does the same exact job, and he's told that he will make $200,000. Just put yourself in that situation for a moment. One guy's going to do one job, the same job, and make $20,000, and another guy's going to make $200,000. Just think about that. Do you think that these two guys will carry themselves the same way, day in and day out? When they see each other at lunch break, uh, do you think they'll have the same sort of attitude and excitement about their work? Do you think that they will talk about their job with the same sort of spirit and energy and attitude? Maybe even excitement and joy? Probably not, right? Would you agree that probably they're not going to talk about it the same way? Of course not. Because one guy in this scenario has what we would call hope. Hope. Now, when I say hope, I don't mean it like we usually think the word hope, the way we use it in our common language today, which is way more associated with the idea of wish or uh, wishful thinking, like I hope it doesn't rain when I play golf, is just wishful thinking, meaning I have no control over the matter and I don't have any certainty. I just kind of wish and cross my fingers that it's not going to happen. That's really not what the word hope means. Hope is actually the certainty the certainty of our expectation of what's coming to us in the future, our certainty. And there are things that you are hopeful for. And that first guy has, one of those guys, the guy that's going to make $200,000, has hope. Because in his mind, his future is bright. What's coming to him is good. And he's excited about it. And so therefore, he approaches his work a certain way. The other guy has not hope, but despair, meaning What's coming to him in the future is not bright and good, but bleak. He's lost hope, and therefore he has lost his joy. You see, what I'm proposing is that what we think about our future has immediate, direct, and big impact on our present. What you think about your future, what your life will be, what's going to become of you, has major, major impact on how you live your life today. This is the power of hope. Hope is vital because we are hope-based beings. 
You know, the idea of hope is actually not just a religious observation or a word that we use to describe the warm and fuzzy feelings people get when they come to church. That, that's not really what hope is. In fact, there are neuroscientists across the country right now pouring millions of dollars and thousands of hours into uh, time and money into understanding what scientists are now calling the human optimum, uh, optimism bias. Let me say that one more time. These guys are calling it the human optimism bias. What scientists can't figure out is, why are human beings actually hopeful? Think about that. Why, why are we hopeful? I know so a lot, there's a lot of reasons, right, why we shouldn't be. Um, in fact, we are inundated with multiple reasons of why we shouldn't be hopeful in the world. And yet, and yet, across the board, human beings remain hopeful about their future. In fact, in 2007... 70% of families said in this uh, national survey that people and families are not doing as well as they used to do 20, 30, 50 years ago. They were saying families today, uh, whether it be financial well-being, opportunities, jobs, situations, are not doing as well. 70% of the people thought that in general families were not doing well. And yet 76% of families thought of their own personal family as having a bright future and a bright hope. We, we are hope-based creatures, and yet we can't figure out why. On a less academic level, out of the neuroscientist realm, you'll find messages of hope everywhere. You know, hope is really what drives a lot of our buying habits. Um, the smartest marketers in the world don't just promise us a good product that will eventually work and not break down, but they actually end up selling to us that this thing has the ability to give you what you want. Hope. Hope is what drives a lot of our political allegiances. We tie ourselves to political causes and political candidates because we see in them, we've invested into them a hope that they can deliver to us what we want. And you know, hope is what's behind our motivation. For things like going to school when you don't want to. For things like working hard in a job when you just don't always see the end of it. But maybe you might have something better. Hope is what's behind social causes. When people engage in them, they say, I want the world to be a better place. And they engage in them because they actually believe that through effort, the world can become better. And hope is what causes us to sacrifice and give of ourselves because we believe that something in our future is better than where we are right now. Hope is the confidence that we place in something or someone to be able to give us what we're ultimately longing for. And every person in this room has in some way, shape, or form some glimmer of hope in something. Hope is powerful. We can't live without hope. And the moment we lose hope, we really stop living. Whether we're breathing and alive is not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is the moment we lose hope in what our job and career is going to become, we stop trying. The moment we lose hope in a future better, betterment of a relationship, we stop trying. The moment we lose hope that we can, as people of faith, improve and become the kind of people God wants us to be. If we lose hope that we can grow, we stop trying. We stop living. Hope is necessary. And if hope is necessary, then it is necessary we fix our hope onto something that can deliver on our deepest desires.
You know, this is an important um, idea because in every case, in every situation, hope is something that we all need. And if you're here today um, and in important situations in your life, you're struggling maybe with hope. Maybe it's key relationships. Maybe it's career opportunities. Maybe it's financial stability. Perhaps it's your health or whatever is to come in your future and you're lacking hope. What we're going to see this morning in our text, the one verse from 1 Peter is that God actually offers us a kind of hope that allows us to look at all these other things we hope for and say, if they happen, that would be great. But if they don't, I know that I'm still okay. God has that kind of hope for us. And so we're going to take the month of December, the next four weeks, counting today, and do a series of teaching on the idea of hope, specifically what the Christian hope is. Because when you look across the world, there is hope promised to you everywhere. Hope is offered to you in all different facets of life. And the Christian hope is unique. And I want to make sure that everyone in this room understands what the offer of the Christian hope is and how we can live in it. So our text today does three really simple things. It shows us what God offers, how God offers it, and why God offers it. Hope. What God offers how he offers it, and why he chose to offer it to us. This will be pretty quick. Number one, what God offers. You notice Peter says something specific about hope here. He doesn't just say, the world is bleak, life is tough, um, God has some you know, medicine that will make you not feel as bad. God has a, a numbing agent that will make you not feel as bleak in a difficult world. He doesn't just describe it as a hope or a generic hope. He says that this hope is a living hope. It's really important you understand what Peter's getting at when he says that this hope is a living hope. He's talking specifically about the nature of the hope that God offers to us, the kind of hope. You see, the difference between Christian hope and all other hopes, whether it's career, relationships, um, events, circumstances, all these other hopes, is that the Christian hope is a living hope hope meaning it is an entity that is independent of you it means that it is alive and well whether you believe it or not all other hopes in this world every other hope that you have outside of the christian hope is a dependent hope meaning it needs your time it needs your energy it needs your effort and it needs circumstances to go right for you to have that hope. And so the moment you stop hoping for your job to get better and trying, it goes, your hope goes away. The moment you stop working in a relationship, the hope for it to become better goes away. The moment you stop saving for retirement, the hope that you're going to be able to retire goes away, right? The moment you stop. All of those hopes are dependent hopes, meaning you have to breathe life into them. And they drain us. And they take energy and they make us tired. Now, they're good things, but they wear us down. But Peter comes along and he says, hey, I've got a Christian hope. It's different. It is alive. Meaning it, inside of it, has life. And when you get the Christian hope, it doesn't suck life out of you. It does what? It gives you life. It's a living hope. Sound good? Sound good? Sounds good to me. 
Consider something you hope for, whether it's a job, a better community, a better relationship. As I said, the moment you stop caring, that hope dies. The Christian hope is alive because it exists regardless if you believe it or not. The, the Christian hope is existing. What God, isn't doing, what God is doing is not inviting you to create a hope that looks Christian. He's inviting you to partake of a hope that he has made alive and has given to you. This hope is a living hope. Number two, it is a born hope. It is not just a warm feeling that you get or a wishful thinking about religious ideas. This is the unshakable certainty that we have alive within us when you let it come alive in you. But that means that it's born. He says we are born again to a living hope. And if something is born, where does it start out when it's born? It starts out in infancy, right? So we not only have a living hope, but a born hope. So the hope that is, comes alive in you, this Christian hope that is born, starts out in infancy. That means that you have to nurture it and care for it and feed it and keep it warm and protect it and help it grow. That's why Peter carries this analogy over to chapter 2 when he says, As newborn babes who desire the pure milk of the word grow by it. He's talking about the hope that comes alive in us when we have certainty of the future that God has promised to us in Jesus Christ. And that hope becomes born in us. It's living. It gives us life. But it's born, and it means that we must care for it and protect it and feed it and nurture it. So what God offers to us is a living hope that is within us, a born hope. Number two, how does God offer this to us? How does God make this promise? See, God is not like... Are we past the election enough where I can make political references? Everybody good? All right. Okay. God is not like a politician that stands up and says, I promise that I will deliver this and do this, and what is your most deepest felt need? I'll give you that very thing, and I swear by I promise. And then he gets into office, and he has all these barriers, right, that he can't actually do that, or maybe there were empty promises, just whatever it may be. God doesn't stand back and promise what he is going to do. To give you hope. Get this distinction, okay? Every hope you have outside of Jesus Christ is a hope of a promise of what you think will happen in the future, right? That's, what's, that's what it's based on. We, we think that this person will deliver to us what we want. We think this job will give us what we want. We think that this thing will come about if this happens. Here's how God gives you hope. He says that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through. Now read it carefully in verse 3. What does it say? you got to get this. How do you get the living hope? The promise of what God says, I swear I'll do it. He says you have the living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Meaning God can breathe a living hope into you. Not because of just some warm, fuzzy feeling of what he says, he swears will happen. But you can know it with certainty because of what he has done already in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most vital doctrine of Christianity. Without it, Jesus was a wonderful teacher, even a sacrificial individual. But if he didn't raise from the dead, we have no hope that after this life is over, there's something to come. We have no hope of it. He's just 
in the grave as a great teacher that we memorialize, but nothing else. The resurrection is how this hope is born in us. And you have to have certainty of the resurrection. Christian, listen to me right now. If someone were to ask you, are you certain that Jesus Christ raised from the dead? How would you answer that? And if you said, yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am certain that Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior, died, his body and soul were separated, and three days later, that lifeless body was reanimated and walked out of the grave. I'm certain of that. And I said, how do you know? Could you answer that? Let me give you three really quick, simple ways that you can have certainty. Now, what I'm going to say to you in the next minute or so is not the end of your journey of being certain of the resurrection. It's the beginning. I'm going to tell you three things that can give you certainty that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Three things. But you've got to do the work to think about it. You've got to do the work to study it. You've got to do the work to consider, okay, I heard what Anthony says, but do I believe that? Does it make sense to me? Because when you do the work of being certain that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, it changes your life forever. And until you're certain that he was dead and now alive, you'll be a nominal Christian. You'll kind of play with Christianity. You'll do some of the religious forms, but it won't be deep and unshakable. Number one, here's how I know the resurrection happened. I'm certain of it because, number one, the witnesses of his death. The people that witnessed Jesus die actually saw him die. Joseph of Arimathea was one. He was a prominent individual. It's important to note that in the gospel accounts, when they talk about Jesus dying, they tell us specific names of people, meaning this was the footnotes of first century writing. You know, if you ever read an academic paper, there are footnotes at the bottom saying, I'm making a claim, but here's my footnotes. Go check my source. I promise it's true. Naming people, both by their name and where they're from, was footnotes in first century writing. Meaning, if you don't believe me that Jesus was dead, go ask Joseph. Joseph who? The guy from Arimathea. Go to Arimathea and ask him. He was there. He's the one that wrapped him in linen. Number two, the witness of his death. The Roman centurion set by Pilate to break his legs. Remember that? Roman centurions were sent by Pilate. Now, do you know much about Roman centurions? These were trained, brutal death agents. They, were, they lived, they breathed the idea of how do I make people stop being alive? That's what their existence was. And they walk up to Jesus and his whole job in this entire world is to make sure people who are living are now dead. That's his whole job. And he walks up and then he says, I'm going to break this guy's leg so that his lungs will crush and his heart will explode and he'll finally die. And he walks up to break his legs. He breaks the one thief's legs and the other. He doesn't break Jesus' legs because he looks at him and he stabs him in the side and water and blood gush out and they go, this guy's dead. This guy's dead. Okay. And Pilate himself. Why is this important? Pilate's a historical figure. This is not a made-up character in some story in the Bible. Pilate is a historical figure. His political career hung on the death of Jesus Christ. Why did he give in to, to killing him? Remember the Jews were pressing him and Pilate didn't want to. In fact, his wife even said, listen, don't have anything to do with this man. I don't want to deal with him. Let him go. And Pilate wants to. And finally, the Jews are pressing on him saying, let his blood be on our head and our children. 
And Pilate, not wanting to lose his post from Caesar as the ruler and governor of that area, says, I've got to make sure these people are happy or they're going to report me to Caesar and I'll be out of a job. Jesus' death was, was, is what Pilate's career hinged upon. And so Pilate would not have let him come down from the cross alive. And so when his trusted Roman centurion said, he's dead, Pilate knew he was dead. Okay, so number one, there were credible witnesses of Jesus' death. This guy was dead. Number two, there are credible witnesses of his resurrection. In fact, Paul would say that there are, named in 1 Corinthians 15, some 500 people still alive when he's writing that, that saw him with their eyes, resurrected from the dead. And like I said before, these are the footnotes of first century writing saying, if you don't think he raised from the dead, go ask these people. There are hosts of people who witnessed his resurrection. And more importantly, the witnesses of his resurrection. In every gospel account, there's a group of people that witnessed Jesus' resurrection first. That are the first witnesses. Do you know who they are? They're the women in Jesus' life. Mary, the other Mary. They go to the tomb, and they're the first ones to see Jesus alive. And every gospel writer tells us, hey, the people that witnessed Jesus alive were women. Now, here's why this is important, because in the first century, I'm not saying this is good or great, but this is just what the world was. In first century, both Jewish and Roman courts, the testimony of a woman was not permissible. It was seen as unreliable and it's not something you could believe and so if you were to have a case and you brought a woman as a witness to your case in a Roman or Jewish court in the first century, you would not win. They would not count that witness as credible. So if you were going to make up a story that says, my Savior was dead and now he's alive and I'm building my life upon that and I want to convince people if that's true and you were trying to pull a hoax on people, you would not include in your stories this hoax that women were your witnesses that he's raised from the dead. You wouldn't do it. It would undermine your attempt to deceive people that he's raised from the dead. So what's the only point in including women in the resurrection story? Why would you do it? The only reason is because it's true. That's the only reason. And number three, here's how I'm certain the resurrection happened. The witnesses of his death, the witnesses of his resurrection, and the transformation of his disciples. These were uneducated, cowardly people with no power and influence up until the point that he dies these are chickens right they are afraid they are scattered and all of a sudden uneducated without any influence or power in the world scared men become the most bold resolute people in front of the world's powers you can't shake them something happened in the course of about 40 days to take these men from cowards to we will die for this. Something had to happen. And not only were they cowards and uneducated and uh, non-influential people and then all of a sudden became that, these were also Jewish people who deeply rooted in their religion was uh, the, the most blasphemous thing you could do would be to worship another human being, would be to honor another human being as God. That is the most blasphemous thing that a Jewish person could do. And all of a sudden you have Jews, deeply devout Jews, who are uneducated and cowardly, unafraid and bold, worshiping a human. He had to come back to life. How God offers us this hope is in the resurrection. So how does the resurrection give you hope? Well, personally, you can know this for yourself personally. You can know that your sin is paid for. When a criminal commits a crime 
and is sentenced by a judge to a particular time in prison, and that person fulfills that time in prison, what do they do when that time in prison is over? They walk out, right? Jesus Christ went into the grave, and three days later, he walked out. And why is that important? Because Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus went into the sentence of sin, paid that sentence, and when it was paid for, what did he do? He walked out. So your sin has been paid for. That's how you know, first of all, that you can have hope personally. Secondly, on collective note, on the Lord's day, his broken body was raised back to life. As Todd spoke about this morning at the communion, on the Lord's day, that Sunday, the day of the Lord, this broken, lifeless, dead body was raised back to life. God took what was broken and restored it to health and made it brand new. And he promises that there is another day, another day of the Lord that is coming where God is going to make all things new, both us and the place where we dwell. And so the resurrection is not just an allegory or a metaphor. It is a historical fact that gives you hope personally that your sin is forgiven and hope corporately that all things will be made new. Let me finish with this thought. Why did God offer us hope? What he's offered us, living hope. How does he offer it, the resurrection? Why would he offer it to us? The answer is simple. You see what Paul, or Peter said? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who because of his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. God's great mercy. It's pretty simple. But do not confuse God's great mercy with some version of cheap pity. Don't confuse those two. God wasn't just sympathetic towards us. Like these poor little fledglings and their life is horrible. Let me throw them a bone and maybe they'll leave me alone. This is not God's pity. This is God's great mercy. And you understanding what God's great mercy is can dramatically change your life. The word mercy is not like what we think about it where we have a distant connection with somebody and we just kind of let them off the hook but we don't have any further connection to it. The word mercy that Peter is referencing here is the Old Testament word that references God's loyalty to the covenant he has made with us in spite of our unfaithfulness to that covenant. The mercy of God, the steadfast love of the Lord is God's abundant, never-ending, ceaseless mercy towards us. He is faithful to a covenant that he has made with us in spite of the fact that we have been unfaithful. Yes, God wants you to get the imagery of a marriage in your mind where you have two spouses together as one, and one of them is unfaithful and the other is faithful. And not only is the faithful one standing there saying, I still love you, that faithful one is standing there saying, I will make right what you have made wrong. I'll fix it so that you can have a future hope that we can be reconciled and one again. That's the imagery that God wants us to get. That our unfaithfulness, although it has crushed him and hurt him and caused him great grief, life without you causes him greater. And we have ruined our lives through our unfaithfulness, but God loves to save. This hope is not a location. I can't wait to go there. This hope is not just an event. It's going to be awesome. This hope is not just an achievement. I was holy and righteous. I get to go. This hope is a person. Do you get that? 
Because you know deep down, your life really isn't about places and events and achievements. You know that? Because places, events, and achievements without the people we love are meaningless. Amen to that? So you don't live, although we think and we get deceived by Satan sometimes, to live for events, places, and achievements. What really matters is in those events, at those places, accomplishing those achievements, having the people you love with you. The hope that God offers to us is not an event, it's not a place, it's not an achievement. The hope he offers to us is the very love that you've always wanted. It's the very love that you're begging for. It's the love that you're asking for. You're just asking from the wrong places. Your boss can't give it to you. Your children can't give it to you. Yes, even your spouse can't give you the divine love that you've always been looking for. Can't happen. All of those people were meant to be blessings from God to direct you to His great mercy. And when you have that, you have a hope that allows you to live in this world with stability that cannot be shaken and confidence to walk forward. You might be hopeless in some areas of your life right now. I don't know all of your situations. Relationships, family, career, financial, health. You might have some hopelessness. But when you get this living hope, it allows you to endure the hopeless situations in your life and say, one day I know that He will restore all things and make all things new. How do you obey this? Let me tell you three quickly things. One, ask yourself how you're nurturing your hope. Contemplating. Are you feeding it, protecting it? How are you nurturing your hope? Ask yourself that. Number two, spend time becoming certain about the resurrection. Then ask yourself what the implications of that resurrection is. Spend time with that this week. If you need stuff, call me or email me. I'll send you material upon material. Number three, Ask yourself this personally. How has God, how has he had to have mercy with you? In what ways has God had mercy with you? Don't, don't be generic like, I have sinned. Yeah, we get that. Give yourself 20 minutes this week, 20 minutes, and ask yourself, how has God had to have mercy with me? In what ways has he been faithful when I have been unfaithful? And when you know that, do two things. One, thank him. And two, share that with somebody who might be hopeless. Share that with somebody. If you're hopeless right now, we're here to help. Let's stand and sing.